Hello again. Uh, today's Bible passage is Genesis 4, 1 to 16. Yep, once I feel like everyone's there, I'll begin to read. Okay. This is the Word of God, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and a Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and Abel, brother Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace won for us at the cross. Help us to be reminded in this time that you are near to us. Give us confidence and may your precious spirit continue to do his good work in this place. Please speak through your servant today. Amen. Whenever Pastor Jay uh, and I talk, he likes to make a point um, of bragging about his church. Uh, it's quite annoying, actually. Um, but anytime he does, I, I do listen. And last week coming here, also talking to the VT team, uh, I'm actually very glad that Pastor Jay is ministering here. Um, Pastor Jay uh, is coming back next week, so I'm sure that you'll be glad to have him back. Uh, I will continue to pray for you. Uh, Pastor Jay is a close friend, so I'll pray for him with the church. Uh, so enough about that. I, I've got some uh, something to say today. Uh, it's probably not useful information to you, but I'm actually the eldest of two brothers. Uh, I have a little brother, but unfortunately he's, he's no longer here with us because he went to America to play some golf. So a little bit more about my family. My family likes golf. Uh, my mother has recently found a love for golf too. Uh, my brother went to America in specifically to play golf, and my father actually teaches golf um, as his day job. Uh, my dad, because he teaches golf, he tried to teach me as well when I was young, and I could not find a more boring sport. It was not fun because 
you have to swing the the club and hit the ball as far as far as away from you as possible, and then you have to go look for that ball. So anytime I would go out to the field, I've lost so many balls that I just could not play any longer. But if there was anything valuable I remember from my father's teachings in regards to golf, it's this. The most foundational thing about golf is your posture. Whenever you start, there always needs to be, um, well, my father always tries to make me have the right posture even before I take that first swing. He just needed to say this one word. And because he's Korean, he would say in Korean, chase, or he'll say address, address the ball properly. And that means I would have to get into my posture. So continually he'll say, posture, 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 until I get that right posture. Each time I heard that word, I would know to square up, put my feet shoulder width apart. What else? Put my head down, look at the ball, straighten my back, bend my knees, put my one thumb over the other, interlock the pinkies. And that would be the prompt, posture. And automatically, I would get into that posture. That would become a corrective nudge each time to adjust what is out of place. It seems that God does this in our spiritual walk too. One of the most foundational things in the practice of our religion is that very same thing, posture. Not the posture of when you pray, not the posture of when you sing, but rather the posture of our hearts. And the scripture, though it gives us knowledge, stories like today nudge us to make these corrective adjustments of what is out of place. To give you some context for today's passage, I know you know Genesis, so I'll try to be very quick with it. Now, Adam and Eve had a big fall from grace. They fell into temptation knowing full well the fearful expectation of death. But God, in his mercy, covers their nakedness up, but kicks them out of Eden. They were punished, but after the events of the fall, something good happens. Eve begets a child. And this was the first birth, and so the story seems to go turn to the better, as though right, but rightfully death should be the theme that follows. But instead, here we find that there is new life. Not sure why, but Adam seems to take a bit of a back step from Genesis 2 onwards. There is something that I would like to point out, though, that happened in the garden. Whilst God was cursing the serpent, he said something that probably would have stayed in the mind of Eve. And it was this, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it was a prophecy as to the fate of the serpent. And the serpent who came to Eve as a friend, now exposed as an enemy, it was prophesied that Eve's offspring would be the one to crush the head of the serpent. So Eve having a child might have been much more significant to her than we first think. As she was in the pains of childbirth, she was able to feel bone deep the effects of sin because the pangs of labor was to be amplified due to the curse. However, in the moment as she saw her baby son, Cain, all the pain probably would have washed away because of life, a new life. So much potential. And so Eve makes this statement, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man, her very own offspring, 
And now perhaps this was the offspring to crush the head of the serpent. She will soon find out, though, exactly who Cain is, and it was much more than she had bargained for. Time passed. She conceived again, had Cain's brother, two sons, an experience I'm personally well familiar with. In today's passage, the scripture forces us to compare these two brothers. They both grow up. They both get jobs. They both find them, we, both, we find them both preparing an offering to bring to the Lord. Both came to the Lord with an offering in their arms. But we know that only one's offering was accepted. Cain was a farmer. Abel became a shepherd. And accordingly, from the produce of their own works, they brought it to the Lord. Abel brought the fat portions of the firstborn, whilst Cain, in contrast, the scriptures say, brought some of the offering. Clearly, the scriptures actually favor what Abel brought. And Cain's offering is more of a side note just says, yeah, he brought something too. They brought their offerings to God. And we know from the description of how this would, we don't really know how this would have happened, but probably in my imagination, it would have been that they had an altar and they brought their offering and put it on the altar. We do not know how God accepted one over the other, but also in, in not only in my imaginations, but scholars would say that probably fire came down from heaven and swallowed up Abel's offering much like how Elijah's offering was swallowed up at Carmel. However, however it happened, it was very clear that Abel's offering was accepted. And imagine being Cain. Both you and your brother brought offerings on outers, and the fire shot down from heaven, missed your offering, and landed on your brother. The rejection would have been very clear, would have been very palpable. But why did this occur? God could have accepted both, but instead he only accepted one. Now, I have a younger brother too. Uh, and as the eldest son, reading through the book of Genesis can get very strange. It makes you feel a type of way. Uh, and I think, is anyone here an eldest son or a firstborn? If I can judge him. Have you felt when you were reading through the book of Genesis, oh, this something's not right. Now, if you were to, I'll give you a bit of a recap. Cain was the firstborn, murdered his brother, rejected. Ishmael, firstborn of Abraham, born of a slave, rejected. Esau, firstborn of Isaac, sold his birthright, rejected. Reuben, firstborn of Jacob, slept with his father's concubine, rejected. Now, Judah also had two sons in the beginning. The first one died, and then he got twins through Tamar. The first one popped out his arm during labor, tied a scarlet cord around the wrist, but then went back in because the younger brother pushed him out of the way and came out. Rejected. Manasseh, firstborn of Joseph, did nothing wrong, but when Manasseh and little brother Ephraim were brought towards grandpa Jacob, Jacob proceeded to cross his arms and bless, give the firstborn blessing to the younger child. Now, reading this, I often think, A little bit of nervousness tends to strike me. And I think to myself, if I brought my little brother here, accompanied me, if he accompanied me here to FLM, and we spent probably a month together, I think at the end of that month, and I was to say to you, one of us is a Christian, one of us is an imposter, 
I would think that the majority of you would probably pick my brother to be the Christian and me to be the imposter. Now, I'm not too sure why, but anytime we're together, people say, oh, he smiles more, he's more gentle, he's more kind. His name is Isaac. It's the name of faith. My name is Alvin, cartoon chipmunk. So when I think about these things, it becomes, you start to feel a certain type of way. Now, if it was only Cain, I wouldn't think much more of it. But there is a pattern here in Genesis, and I often think it's not a coincidence. Because it's not. There is an intention when something continually happens in the scripture. In the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verse 22, Moses says, as God's mouthpiece to Israel, Israel is my firstborn. Culturally, being the firstborn is a good thing. You are in that culture. The patriarchs would receive a double portion, more than the other children. They would be the first, because they're the first, they would be the ones to take over as the head of the family. There is a legacy tied into that status of being that firstborn. They sit in a great place of responsibility and privilege, and Israel was God's firstborn. Israel was chosen among the nations and given this heritage, given this privilege to be a light into the world. And it has been understood that Genesis was authored by Moses. So Israel, sitting under Moses' leadership and tutelage, hearing these stories, the pattern of the firstborn rejection would have served as corrective suggestive but corrective adjustments to put into place what was out. But we know the story goes, the first generation, they failed in the wilderness. Israel did go through to the promised land, but it was the second generation under the leadership of Joshua. Israel being the chosen nation of God should not place their confidence in being first. Now, I speak to the people in this room, the church. We should not place our confidence in being first. We saw more, we experienced more, and we know more. Well, God does not show favoritism, and he looks rather at the heart. It is stuff like this that gives rise to sayings like, the first will be last, and the last will be first. So don't ever be confident about yourself because you were first, or what you have done. You could be a long-serving member, you could be a leader, a teacher, even a pastor or an elder, but these are things that you shouldn't be confident about. But there are other things that you should. Now, I wonder how Cain's mind operated during the time of the offering. Cain's internal monologue may have been to the effect of, didn't I bring something to the Lord too? I too went out and gathered from the field what I had worked for by the sweat of my brow, yet... My offering wasn't accepted. So what went wrong? Now, many of us should know by now that God does not find satisfaction in offering for offering's sake. God is more interested in what this offering means. Now, what is really behind the offering? What is more important, the offering or the heart behind it? Now, if we look at the case of these two offerings from Cain and Abel, in the short description of Abel's offering, we can easily discern Abel's heart. Now, it isn't complicated. Even on a human level, when you received a gift, sometimes by just looking at the gift, you know that this person has 
put his heart into it, even on a human level. Your offering, well, your worship should say something about it. God, I believe in you. You are my supplier, so I have, I have no reservations giving this to you. I want to spend more time with you. In your providence, you are the one who got me this job, so I'll give you the first fruit. You are more important than these other things in my life. You are of more value. So I say today, offer to God your fat portions. Your fat. Now, fat could function as an acronym, almost. F, finance, energy, time. And I know that energy does not start with A. For the life of me, I could not find anything that starts with an A. But if you were to say it, F-E-T, FET, if you're Asian, it works. FET. Now, Abel's offering was like this. The fatty portions of the firstborn, which means he brought the best part from actually the first of his flock. Now, you don't do this by accident. There was a plan and a clear intention to this. I remember hearing about a poor old Asian grandma who would prepare her offering early in the week. She would iron the, the notes, make it flat. So I heard this, and I tried it, and my $5 turned into Monopoly money. So I, get, so I don't do this with Australian money. But I understand the principle behind what she was doing. In a digital age, though the form has changed, the principle remains. We set apart things, we save, we make time, we make preparations for things that have value to us. So do not neglect your worship of the most valuable thing. Let me correct that. It's not a thing, but a person. The Bible says the firstborn is mine. And also the Bible says the fat portions are mine. Somehow, able in faith, knew the law's requirements before the law was given. Cain's heart was not the Lord's, however. Ironically, it was Abel, not Cain, who was giving the offering of the firstborn. I say this with a double meaning, though. Abel literally gave a firstborn offering, but he also gave the offering that a firstborn should have given. And it appears that Abel understood God's heart better than Cain. Now, I remember when my little brother was growing up, he would make a lot of unnecessary noises when he would eat mom's food. Like, mmm, this is so good. I, on the ha other hand, didn't think it was necessary to make these noises. My mindset was a little different. But later, I remember someone telling me that they asked my mom at, her old ch at the old church. She said, she asked, well, they asked, who is Isaac to you? Who is the second child to you? Without skipping a beat, my mum would say, ah, oh, he's my friend. And then they proceeded to ask with a follow-up question, what is, who is Alvin to you? She paused and she said, that's my firstborn. To my little brother, he had a different identity because of the way he treated my mum. For me, she was just spitting facts. That's my firstborn. He was born first, 28th of December. He was born then. Now, Cain, unlike his younger brother, did not understand God's heart, much like how my brother seemed to understand more about my mother's heart than I did. And it is entirely possible that people today 
are much like this, are much like me, maybe too self-absorbed, too con- to contemplate on what the will of their parents are or what the will of God is. Now, the book of Hebrews state that Abel was able to give a better offering by faith. This is what the Bible says, and it's at first glance seems strange. Did not Cain have faith to make the offering in the first place, is the question I would ask. Did he not hear the voice of God afterwards? So he knew God was there. He heard God's voice. Now, the faith that the Bible speaks of is different from merely just acknowledging that God exists. It is rather the engagement of that thing which you believe. Faith motivates seeking behavior. Let me say that again. Faith is not acknowledging whether something exists or not, but faith rather biblically is seeking behavior. Now, the simplest way to explain is that faith is a relationship. It's not a thing that you do to meet requirements, but it's a relationship with a person. And incredibly, not having the law, Abel somehow was able to fulfill the requirements of the law by faith. Now, as Cain looked on at his altar, the fruits that he had prepared beforehand remained untouched. So the glare from the fire that consumed his brother's offering would have felt strangely cold to Cain. Probably the feeling of rejection washed over him and left him bitter. It's unclear from Scripture who he was angry at, but he was just angry. Now, emotions like this are very complicated. He could be angry at God. He could be angry at his brother. He could be angry at himself. But whatever it may be, he was just angry. The scriptures say in verse 5 that his countenance fell or his face fell. And thus the downward trajectory of his spiritual walk began to bleed on his face. God came to Cain and said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, it's interesting because the word accepted can mean lifted. So although his face fell, much like his spiritual walk fell, God gave him an option to be lifted up, to be accepted. So before Cain, there is a crossroads. He can either choose to do well, or if he continues down the fallen path, sin is crouching at its door and its desire is to have him. But God says, you must rule over it. This is the first time the word sin appears in the Bible. It's not described here as an action, but rather it's described, it's rather anthropomorphized. It appears as a script, as a creature that is near to the heart. Cain, we know, fails to rule over sin. And we know how the story goes. He murders his brother And this is also the first time a person dies in Scripture. And so Adam and Eve, for the first time, experienced utter, utter physical death. Not just the spiritual death, but death in totality. The death they thought they had evaded by the grace of God finally caught up. From then, death began to expand its rule over the world. Go to chapter 5. He died. He died. He died. This says something about the human condition. We fail to rule over sin, and so sin rules over the world. Now, the great irony is that there was an expectation for Eve's offspring to crush, to crush the head of their enemy, but what ends up happening is Cain assumes the role of the enemy. The prophecy was unfulfilled. Cain was not that guy. He did that 
up, he did the opposite thing. So we must take care how we walk. Take inventory of your own hearts. Because I've seen many churches, and the past three churches I was involved in, had splits because people unwittingly attempted to tear down what God was building. So Cain fails to choose the right path, and this scene becomes quite familiar. And so God comes to him and says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The word brother appears about six, seven times in a short span. Perhaps it's trying to say that murder is always murder of a brother. The Lord responds and he says something perhaps I would describe as quite poetic. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. But it's not just poetry here. What on earth is Abel's blood crying out to God about? It's funny because my brother is the one who taught me this. Abel's Abel's blood cried out for justice. In the book of Revelations, there is an altar where the souls of those who were slain for the testimony of the word of God, and they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Abel's blood cried out to God that there is something wrong. Blood was shed. And there developed in the fabric of our reality a deep tension, something unrelieved and unresolved. Anytime a murder occurs or anyone wrongs another person, this happens. A tension develops and something can be reconciled quickly, but too many things go unresolved. Well, at least in this lifetime. So we look to God who will bring justice. Now, God judges Cain, but he doesn't sentence him to death. Cain receives an amplified curse of the Adamic curse. And he says, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. His punishment seems very harsh, but it is in fact a mercy. Cain becomes a wanderer, but Cain fears for his life that someone will exact the same type of treatment that he did onto his brother. And so God listens to this plea from Cain and grants mercy by placing on him a deterrent, a mark. We don't know what this mark is, and it's been the subject of much discussion to no conclusion, though. Uh, But I did read something interesting. There is a rabbi who wrote a screenplay, a screenwrite, uh, wrote a dramatized adaptation on this account. It's an interesting read, but one of the most interesting points is this discussion of the mark. In the screenplay, the angels in the heavenly courts were deliberating as to what type of mark we should put on Cain. Some suggested an earring. Others suggested, let's put a tattoo on him. Some say skin color. Another says a big dog, or perhaps horns on his head. What about these things? They deliberated on those. These suggestions might sound silly, but those were actual suggestions across history that scholars have suggested. However, they decide upon this mark. They bring clothes, and they weren't any type of clothing. This, the clothing that they presented to Cain were, was reflective. The material 
was mirror. Cain was covered in mirrors. Now this is, though it's a creative rendering of the mark, we will not, never, sh- never know what the actual mark is, but I understand the rabbi's point, and it was this. Whenever someone would come to kill Cain, accuse Cain, point the finger at Cain, what's pointing right back? The mirror was reflecting. We have mounting pressures that stop us from doing wretched things. There's criminal law code, fear of social consequences, and even even the common grace of God just holding us back from being as evil as possible. If these things all disappeared yesterday, I would be speaking to a very different crowd today. So when people point the finger at Cain, they should see themselves in Cain. We should see our own reflection. Cain becomes a wanderer and he moves away from the presence of God. Cain wanders until he settles in a place called Nod. And that word Nod actually means wandering. So it's quite ironic because though he settles in a location, he never truly settles. He never stopped being a wanderer, never being at peace. And that is the effect that sin has on our souls. If we fail to worship, if we fail in our fight of faith, and if we fail there, we will move away from the presence of God. Just as Cain settled, but was never truly settled, you can be here and not be here at the same time. So this is where we are. Anytime we sin in our life, we feel as if we have more accusers than advocates. Perhaps you feel wrong that you have done what you have done. You want to shut it out. You find that it would be better to just walk away from God. Well, let me just work backwards because although Abel's blood cried out for justice and rightfully so, Cain deserved death and all who are under sin deserve death, but we do have an advocate. We are not riddled with just accusers, but we have an advocate, just one though. The book of Hebrews says the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for justice But Christ's blood cries out for grace, and it cries out for mercy. Because Christ shed his blood for us, and that blood speaks a good word for us. As we look on Cain, we we should realize our own sinfulness, but know that many voices, even our conscience, might accuse us. There is a greater voice that advocates on our behalf, and it bids us to return. It bids us to come back to the presence of God. By his grace and mercy, we can stop wandering away from God's presence. And our direction will change from moving away from the presence of God and towards the presence of God. As this repentance takes a grip on our life, we will be given the spiritual power to rule over sin, not just to be ruled by it. To move away from hating our brothers, moving away from being murderers at heart, from being angry, from being fallen to receiving the power of God to do well and to offer proper sacrifices to God, to worship him as we ought. Not only do we have an advocate in Christ, we have a person that we can love and have relationship with. I've always heard that it was hard to have love for a religion, a ritual, but Christianity is about loving the person of Christ. 
Is there anything that we can be confident about in our life? It's this mere fact. We can be confident in the blood of Christ. Now, although I'm the eldest child of two, now I don't see myself simply as the older brother. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of creation. He is our older brother. And unlike Cain, he doesn't murder. Rather, he gives up his life for us. He was that guy that we were looking for, the one that was spoken of in the prophecy, the one that was prophesied that would crush the head of the serpent. So I'll conclude with this. Whatever state you are in, just come. Cling to him and he'll continually make corrective nudges as you walk in your walk of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, that though we have failed in every respect, that you made a way to still have mercy upon our souls. Please forgive us for our present failures, and we ask that you correct our hearts. Change it, Lord, from stones to flesh, that our consciences be tender and sensitive in hearing your voice. Father, we believe in Christ, and in his name we pray. Amen.